Hey, rock and rollers. Welcome to another episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Hosted by me, the Wolf, Mac B, just off Abbey Road here in central London. And we want to take you down the road of one of the biggest progressive rock bands in the history of the world. And that's, yes, for those of you who are maybe a little unfamiliar with the term progressive rock, it usually refers to bands and albums that have a distinct musical direction. It's usually accented by extraordinary musicianship and often a lot of keyboards versus some American rock and roll, which would not have those keyboards, focus more on the two guitar attack. And very long songs in some cases, maybe even the whole side of a record. It's kind of a very English subgenre. You don't see a ton of American bands doing progressive rock, and certainly not in the 70s. You do see more today with bands like Dream Theater. But Yes is an interesting case in that they were popular in America, actually on both sides of the pond, doing their progressive rock thing, had some big classic rock signal. Then they got into the more progressive, long, sometimes whole side of a record songs in the 70s, went through a lot of lineup changes, and then in the 80s kind of hit the pop big time with Owner of a Lonely Heart. Now, in my opinion, in America at least, there are kind of three kinds of Yes fans or people who know about Yes. There's the kind who only know Owner of a Lonely Heart because that hit the radio, was huge on MTV in 1983, and that's really the only Yes song they know. Then there's a much wider swath of people who know them from roundabouts and long-distance runaround and some of the other hits they had through the 70s, plus Owner of a Lonely Heart. And then there's the big fans, the ones who followed them all through the years, love the progressive bits, love the 24-minute songs, and just love their amazing sound, led primarily by Chris Squire on the bass and either Alan White or Bill Bruford on the drums, generally speaking John Anderson on lead vocals, and mostly Steve Howe on guitar, with a host of amazing keyboard players over the year like Rick Wakeman and Tony Kay and Jeff Downs. So today, we're going to explore it from our perspective. We grew up in the 80s. We're big into MTV. Our first exposure to Yes was Owner of a Lonely Heart. But to many hardcore Yes fans, that's not a Yes album. That's a sellout song. And I understand that. But this was our first exposure to them. And maybe, yes, we've also heard Roundabout. We've heard I've Seen All Good People. But we didn't know the deep cut album tracks, which is really the essence of Yes. When they tour now, they might play a whole album in its entirety from start to finish, including some songs that are themselves 20, 21, 24 minutes. It's long. This is what their long-term appeal has been to their hardcore fans. And I think that now, as we're older, we can examine this music with different ears, a different psyche, and a better understanding of its place in the world. And so that's our goal here today, is kind of tell you our own personal journey for Yes, but try to get those casual fans, those fans who don't know them very well or only know them from Owner of a Lonely Heart, to take another look, to take a deeper dive, and see what you think, because there's some amazing musicianship, some amazing songs on here, amazing songs throughout their catalog, and all sorts of great musicians who are there to make it. Now, as usual, we want you to follow us on Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf and at ActionJack72. And check out all past episodes at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. But for now, on episode 20, listen to me in action. Talk about how we've discovered Yes and how it's made an imprint on our lives here on The Wolf. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Point of contention here. I'm a little bit upset with. Okay. I never, I never really did a whole lot of research on Yes, mm-hmm. but when Asia came out, mm-hmm. right, Jeff Downs was billed as from Yes. Okay, he was on one record. Right. I think, I think you may have, he may have inflated his, as they say over there, his CV for that deal. Look, Asia and Yes have been tied together, obviously, since the dawn of time, since Steve Howe was a huge part of Yes. Correct. Uh, coming into Asia. And Jeff Downs was just a minor part of Yes prior to creating Asia. True. He was mm-hmm. better known for the Buggles. And there was the one album and one tour drama that he and his Buggles buddy, Trevor Horn, were a part of. And at the time, it, it was a little derided. And obviously, it's it, he's doing, Trevor's doing his best John Anderson impersonation. And it's actually pretty good. If you listen to drama, I think it's one that's aged very well. But it doesn't sound quite right because it's not John Anderson. Right, and John Anderson will always be the voice of Yes. And I think it was very hard for Trevor to sing that way on tour. I think it wore him out. I, I, I think physically it it killed him, and they're like, okay, this obviously isn't going to work long term. Now, Trevor did go on to have great success and help them produce albums going forward and work with them on the big one, 90125. I, don't, I think that's what happened to What's-His-Name, too, from Gary Sharon. Mm-hmm. He went, like... If you listen to that record that he's on, that Van Halen record, mm-hmm. he's trying to sound like Sammy Hagar, and I think he just that just beat him up too, trying to hit those high notes all the time. Like, yeah, either you can do it or you can't. Right. And John Anderson, like, I can't believe he can still sing like that. I mean, not exactly the same. I get it, but I mean, it's not bad. No, it, it's it's pretty amazing, and it's one of the things that for yes today and yes in the last ten twelve years annoys me because John Anderson hasn't been in the band, and there hasn't been a real good reason why. Now, when they first got back together in 2008 I think there was a decent reason I think John was going through some health issues and it may have even had something to do with his voice or his throat or something like that and so they booked a tour John couldn't do it so they carried on without him okay fine 
Bands do that from time to time. Someone's down, can't do it. All right, well, let's just get somebody else to do it. And maybe they could pay him less. I don't know exactly how that worked. But they kept Benoit David for a while. Then they eventually moved on from him and then got another John Anderson impersonator in, this time a guy named John Davison to replace him. And to me, that's kind of annoying. You're denying the fans the one true voice and I just, I get the feeling there's something between him and Steve Howe. And as much as I love Steve Howe's guitar player and artist, and I have a lot of his stuff solo and in the bands that he did, obviously we're huge Asia fans. I don't think, and having read his book, All My Yesterdays, which is a pretty decent read, I don't think Steve Howe and I would probably get along either, would be my guess. We at least would not be friends. Yeah, there's the whole thing too. And it's like, I mean, it goes back to pay. Like, you have to pay John Anderson a lot, but I can get a guy who sounds a lot like him. And in this day and age, and I know uh, the what's his name Eddie Trunk rails on this all the time. Do people even really care? Like, do you just want to hear the song? I mean, are you really there in 2021? That's not John Anderson. I'm not paying my money. Probably not. I mean, right. you can get. I know what's his name was really upset. KK Downing mm -hmm. when he got replaced by Richie Faulkner and it's like okay so wait a minute you got a guy who looks a lot like me who plays all the same equipment dresses the same are you trying to pass him off like to the casual fan as the same guy mm -hmm. like that's that's kind of crap so I can assume I, I can I can see how if you're the original artist you get very bent out of shape if it's somebody totally different okay we're going in a different direction we're doing something okay you're not doing any of those things. You're trying to pass somebody else off as me. Don't like it. Yeah, and obviously then John Anderson went out and did Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman. Actually, it's called Yes, featuring John Anderson, Trevor Rabin, and Rick Wakeman. They didn't really make any new music, but they did a live album, Live at the Apollo. And they figured, hey, I've got a right to this name, too. And I think the fans have a right to hear John Anderson sing it, for sure. And Rick Wakeman, you can't say he was the only great keyboard player in yes but i feel Correct. like if you if you could pick one lineup of five people rick wakeman would be on most everybody's list certainly the yes. majority of people's list so let's talk i mean look yes jumped around they had as many people as spinal tap had in their band over the years right <laughs> basically and you say it was pretty steady but you know this guy jumped out then yeah he was there for 45 years but this guy came back and went back three times and John Anderson's on most every record but not every single record and not you know all of them certainly most of the, what they put out the last 12 years are live out but didn't you know obviously wasn't on fly from here but yeah Steve Howe I think has seized control especially with Chris Squire having passed away now there's no one who has always been a yes Chris Squire was the only constant from the first album all the way through until his death he was the only one who was always in yes correct Alan White who is the current drummer got the gig in 1973 and hasn't left since before that Bill Bruford who was a there from the beginning until Alan White took over and is a prog rock legend. I mean, he's played with Yes on all those great albums. He played with King Crimson for years. He played with Genesis for a cup of coffee after Peter Gabriel left. And they're like, well, we need Phil out front singing, not drumming. So we might need your help there. He played in a British act called UK, which is kind of a prog, kind of a prog pop thing with uh, John Wetton, of course, of Asia fame mm -hmm. and King Crimson. So all these guys know each other. They've kind of played around in, in all of their 
bands together at one point or another, it seems. And then Steve Howe, of course, came in after Peter Banks, after the first two. So his first was the Yes album, made in 71. And then they did uh, Fragile, which was big for them. Yeah, to me, I think, like, if you're talking about, like, classic Yes, it starts with Fragile. I mean, I know they had records before that, but, like, that was really the one where I think they hit it into overdrive to what they what they wanted to do and to be the, the band that we that you think of in the classic rock era. I mean, they had two, the two big hits on it, Roundabout and Long Distance Runaround is a phenomenal song. Like, it's just, it's just, it's great. It's well put together. Anderson, that's John Anderson right there. When you think of, like, the classic vocals, Mm -hmm. man, is that a good song. It really is. And, of course, we've talked about this before, how somehow now, as we've gotten older, the bass seems to stick out more, and it's easier to pick out more. And I've come to respect bassists a lot more. Uh, And Chris Squire is a true talent on the bass. Right. He was a great backup vocalist and has done some lead singing in his life but his coordination and and the way that they use his bass kind of throughout to kind of hold it all together because sometimes there's four or five guys just going off in different directions doing all sorts of crazy stuff and i feel like the thing that's holding it together is chris squire's bass if you listen to and again the big the big tracks that you're going to hear on classic rock channels are going to be are going to be long distance and then roundabout the first time that you hear roundabout your head explodes because you know they have the little intro part and then chris squire comes in and punches you directly in the face and you say this is the greatest thing why doesn't everybody play like this i I mean well because you can't get it but to have the bass just driving everything is phenomenal and i think he's he's one of those dudes and again here's the deal folks the united states we're idiots we like you know happy meals and ordering food out of a clown's mouth the level of musicianship and the depth of this is just phenomenal. And you're right. When we were younger, we're like, eh, but now that you really get into it, it's, mm-hmm. it's great. And it's not necessarily casual listening. Like you could put on a Tom Petty record, who we love, and, and have it in the background, right? And have your dinner and, or you know, work on a project or read your prog rock magazine or whatever it is. But with Yes, you, you kind of have to sit and listen. You have to intently listen, especially once they got into 71, 72, 73, 74, and they're making songs that are a whole side of the record and maybe have four or five sub-suites in them. You have to pay attention a little bit to these things to, to really understand the level of musicianship with the chord changes the time changes and the story they're trying to tell here it's, it's different and the other thing too that i was thinking about is i mean i remember the well i don't remember the early 70s but i remember the mid 70s if you had if you put fragile on a 1971 hi-fi mm-hmm. you're gonna miss 90 percent of it. this is headphones music because you gotta say Oh, hey, oh, this is going on in the background. This is happening on from one side of my head and the other side of my head. Yeah, the, just the technology they had to rebroadcast that was not there in, 19, in the 70s. You had to have, this was, you know, sitting in a basement with headphones on, maybe doing other things, who knows. But, yeah, there's a lot going on, and you really have to. You're right. You can't just say, oh, I'll just put it on the background. for you got to really concentrate on what's going on. And the more that you do, the more that you're going to hear all these guys playing together. There really is no, I mean, I, I would say Chris Squire is, yes, the star of the show. Mm-hmm. 
but there's a lot of stuff going on. Everybody's jumping in and out, and the, and the uh, drum part really goes well with that. These guys are phenomenal. Well, that's right. It's always been a musician's band. You have to have certain chops to even try out for this band. I mean, when Rick Wakeman left in 74 and they needed to replace him, they eventually got Patrick Moraz from Switzerland. One of the people they auditioned was Vangelis, the composer, the Greek player who is amazing. He's done all sorts of soundtracks. If you can get the original Blade Runner-like deluxe, Three CD soundtrack. I highly recommend picking that up. And Vangelis and John Anderson eventually got together later and did some records together as well. But you have to be kind of an Olympic athlete at your <laughs> at your instrument to be able to be in this band. You know, <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. There really isn't. I mean, everybody's doing this incredible stuff. You know, and this you mentioned that Fragile's where it all took off. Well, it was Steve Howe's second record, so now he's settling in and starting okay. to find his place. Uh, and it's Rick Wakeman's first record with the band, which again, to me, those five, well, I don't know, it's, it, for me, it's John Anderson, obviously, is the singer. Chris Squire, obviously, is the bass player. Steve Howe, it's fairly obvious to me, is the guitarist, the, the most classic guitarist, yeah. and yes, been on the most classic records and then it's rick wakeman would be the keyboard player bill bruford and alan white are a little different but uh, and i'm not going to necessarily pick one over the other obviously alan's tenure was a lot longer than bill's but bill was still here on on fragile he would make it also onto close to the edge which was the next one and then alan white would come in for the double tales for topographic oceans which is an amazing time to try to join a band you you make four <laughs> songs on four sides of a record. It's unbelievable, you know. It's crazy. But so now we're, we're kind of in this place. They're young. They've got some momentum. You know, the Yes album did well. Fragile is a big one. And then Close to the Edge does very well uh, also. But to me, I, I think you're right. Fragile also has the South Side of the Sky and Heart of the Sunrise, which are maybe not big radio hits, but they're big Yes catalog hits. Yeah. And it's important to get on the radio and get songs on the radio. And they were talking about how they were staying in Manhattan and they heard Roundabout on WNEW like every 45 minutes or something like that. Like staying at the hotel, hanging out by the pool, and your song comes on every 45 minutes. Like, this is great, man. We've really made it because you're in New York, you know. But Mood for a Day is a how song. It's basically one of his instrumentals that he's been playing for years. So, yeah, you're right. It, it did great. I think it went double platinum in the U.S. And the other person who came into their life lives at this point was Roger Dean did his first cover for them with the you know the globe and maybe the ancient ship on there and then of course the next one is when he made the yes logo the kind of famous balloony yes logo on close to the edge which hasn't been used on every yes album since uh but on a great many of them and kind of helped create a brand or an identity yeah. but certainly the artwork is something that goes along very closely with some of the mood uh, and some of the themes of their music and i think it's kind of cool too because if you're a yes fan and you're looking forward to the day. It's the whole package. Like you want to see what you. Yeah, obviously you want to hear the music, but you want to see what Roger Dean does with the with the artwork. And it's one of those deals that can almost be a standalone. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I don't like album covers with just a photo of the band. Me like, neither. That's kind of weak. But when you have this whole other thing, kind of like you know, Iron Maiden has their own. Right. You know, Eddie. You know, what's what's it going to be this time? That's same right. thing. It's all. It's it's in that same vein. And, and Roger Dean has a very even if you hadn't seen it before and even if it wasn't a yes cover you could look at it and say that's a roger dean piece of art it's he's very distinctive 
That's right. And, and he worked with a lot of bands. Obviously, he's very instrumental to Asia's records mm-hmm. over the years. Uh, Uriah Heep used him for some things. Steve Howe used him for his first solo record. Steve Hackett has used him. There's a great album cover by, uh, it's kind of a African fusion band called Osabisa that has the flying elephants on it that's just amazing. What he does is he has these kind of natural scapes that are usually about rocks or trees or and sometimes floating islands and things like that. And then usually has some fantastic creatures in there as well. Mm-hmm. It's very colorful, otherworldly, kind of like ancient Avatar kind of stuff. It's, Avatar, the movie that is. I think it's really neat. And you're right. It's, it's part of, I want to see what the next album is. I will always look at a Yes cover. I will not buy all of their live albums because they'll basically make one on every tour now. And that's fine. They should do that. I always want to see what the covers look like because Roger Dean is amazing. I actually have a, an autographed book of his that has not only all of his album covers, but a lot of just stuff he's done artistically and he's actually designed some odd little hobbit homes and things like that into architecture, uh, which is kind of neat. But uh, it's it's all part of them finding their identity. Yeah, and, and I think that's all. Uh, it, that's a part of it too. And, and there is a there is a sense of continuity and a sense of safety when you it goes from one to the other. There's a yeah, just a sense of it. One goes to the other. It's it's you look forward to it, and you can actually put them up, like you said. Even the ones that even the albums that you don't love to listen to, you can still look at the artwork and say, okay, cool. You know, Roger Dean knocked it out of the park again. And then you kind of had a little bit of I don't want to say weirdness, but a little like blurring of the lines because you know Asia if you didn't know anything about Asia no clue who they were you put that up and you're like hey that's a yes record well no not really because here's the deal and the same with Anderson Proof or Wakeman and Howe you look at that hey uh, well I mean that's I count that as a yes record yeah I mean you know I think even in the catalog it has the next number after it's 90126 right exactly yeah (laughs) <laughs> and I think the only reason, in fact, I know the only reason that wasn't a yes record was Chris Squire said, no, 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 Chris Squire equals no yes. So well, we'll, we'll nice get into day. that. I mean, they, they okay. eventually broke into two camps. I mean, that's what happens when you have, and it's great that you have, if you've got five people who can contribute to songs, five writers in the band, you can create some great stuff. It can create a lot of push and pull and it can eventually create some tension. Yes, Rick, Rick Wakeman was a great addition, but by the time they did Tales from Topographic Oceans, like, guys, we just did, like, four 20-minute songs. This is ridiculous. We, You know, Close to the Edge was a whole side. we we got to start thinking shorter here. We, we can make more concise statements. And I think in a very English and a very yes way, they say, okay, well, next up, you know, it's like, you're not on with the program. We'll get someone who is. And then Rick went out and did a lot of solo albums. And then Patrick Mraz came in and they did Relayer. Again, Gates Delirium is 21 minutes or something like that. The whole yeah, side A, it's I crazy. I was going to say, hey, Rick, if you didn't like if you didn't like Tales from the Topographic Ocean, you weren't going to be real happy with Relayer. Yeah, you know, and then Relayer. So now you've made two records, one a double record. So basically three records in two years. And you've only written seven songs on those three records. That's insane, man. But then in 75 and 76, they all went and made solo records. I mean, Wakeman was already doing it. John Anderson made a solo record. Steve Howe did Beginnings. Uh, I mean, even Alan White made a solo record. He's the drummer, you know. So uh, there's a lot of talent in this band, but it also means you've got other opportunities. And if the band ship isn't going the direction you want to go, there can be changes. Yeah, and I remember the first time I ever got my hands on a copy of Tales from the Topographic Ocean just 
looking at it saying, wait a minute, and this was on CD. There's two CDs and four songs. How is this even a, this doesn't even make sense. Like, it was hard for my brain to wrap around, like, who would listen to this? Well, you'd listen to it if you want to hear, again, excellent musicianship. If you're looking for a single track, keep moving, Jack, because this isn't good. This isn't for you. Well, that's right. And sometimes they can pull a single out of it. Like, the single Soon kind of came out of the last six minutes. They cut up into, like, a four-minute song from Gates of Delirium. So you, you can yeah. take single-ish songs out of there, and they could just play some of that if they want to. But, yeah, it's it's, it's nuts. And the thing is, on Tales from Talk, it's like because, you know, Close to the Edge had, like, four or five parts to it, right? And some of these songs, yes, they're 20 minutes long or they're 15 minutes long, but it is part one, quarter of the scene, yeah. part two. This is the epic, you know, that kind of thing. On Tales from Talk, Graphic Ocean, I think they all had a second name, but it was all just yeah. one 20-minute song on every side. Correct. It's like crazy. Well, okay, so... And and then, you know, eventually they all kind of wised up. Patrick Mraz left. Rick Wakeman came back in. And they did on Going for the One in Tormato make some changes uh, and, and try to get some. Now, they still did some big, very long songs. But they did try to shorten some up and doing stuff like Wondrous Stories and some stuff that's, you know, kind of pretty and nice that maybe you could get on the radio was a bit of a change for them. But it, it eventually led to more breakdown. And, you know, for Tormato, Rick was like, because he left again after that so they could make <laughs> drama with the Buggles. Uh, instead of him and John Anderson. And you know, he left again. He's like, we had good music, but it was poorly produced and the artwork sucked, you know, because he didn't like the Tormato cover, um, which I think was Hypnosis. I think Hypnosis, who did a lot of Pink Floyd records, did that and going for the one. It could be. It looks very. It looks very Pink Floydy esque. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, if they didn't do it, they were ripping off Pink Floyd. Whoever did do it, let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. But no, not Roger Dean. A total departure. So again, if you're a big Yes fan, are you? Hey, this isn't what I was thinking of. This isn't what I wanted. And you mentioned pictures of the band. There is a picture of the band on the back of Tormato, and it's taken on Primrose Hill, which is where I walk the dog. It's where I let uh, him run free, and it's got a great view of Central London from the top of the hill up there. It's awesome. That cover's fine. Yeah. Once you get off the front cover, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I just right. think it's and then, a little something. And then we talked about Drama, which came out in 1980 with the two new members, Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs from The Buggles. Didn't really work out. I think the album's aged well. But then in 1983, we get to the breakout. It's it's kind of the album that makes it. Rick Wakeman, in later years, 25 years later, even though he did not play on 90125, says it's the one that's allowed the band to keep going. In all its yes. forms and all its incarnations because they did that and even though they don't always play songs from there because they are such an album oriented band in the last 15 or 12 years you know they've done a lot of okay we're going to do drama we're going to do relayer which is what they were supposed to do last year and this year and now hopefully next year at Royal Albert Hall when I've got tickets to see them but they'll do these albums all together they'll do all of Fragile they'll do half of Topographic Oceans things like that but because of the worldwide success and the huge hit with Owner of a Lonely Heart. It has allowed the band to continue to go on. Now, I want to focus on this period for a bit because it is how you and I were basically introduced to Yes. As kids in 1983, when I was 10 and you were 10 and you were turning 11, we didn't know all the old records. Yeah, I had never heard of Yes before. I mean, they were like, it was one of those deals where like they came out and it was like, well, who are these guys? Well, they've been around for a while. And they, you know, they were just, okay, cool. But I went back and listened to this a couple of times. This is a very solid rock record. They had, what, like four singles at least off of this? 
Owner of a Lonely Heart was the big one. That was the big one on MTV. But they had a lot of stuff on here. And it's all tight, compact stuff from that era. And really, like, when you go back and listen to the original stuff, it's Chris Squire driving the bus, right? Right. This now is more into your rock riff guitar leads. It's not the yes from years past. But you're right. This was our introduction. And so this, and, and you're right also, this is what allowed them to keep going because you can always pull owner of uh, everybody knows that track everybody one of probably one of the most iconic intros you know you get the you get the drum and then right into that rock that guitar riff and you yeah you don't steve howe obviously plays chords but he doesn't hit those big kind of heavy power chords most of what he does is very intricate he likes to go he likes to hit triplets and hit things one octave, two octave, three octaves. It's kind of his signature to do something like that. He's done it throughout his career. Whereas Trevor Raven comes in, and he's more of a rock guy. And he looks like more of a rock star, too. No offense, but most of the guys in Yes are not the kind of guys you put on Tiger Beat magazine. Yeah. But Trevor Rabin is good looking, and he and he's tan, unlike the English guys. Trevor Rabin is South African. He may be the only South African-born member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he had a band, Rabbit, that was pretty popular down there. Moved, you know, to to become uh, a big rock star in America, and and eventually hooked up with Yes. So after Drama and the Drama Tour, everybody starts thinking, all right, let's start getting back together. Steve Howe had moved on to Asia. Of course, you and I love Asia. The original Asia album was huge. A lot of people. People don't realize it was the number one selling album in America in 1982, which is kind of hard to believe. You think like, yeah, The Wall was the number one selling album in 1980. Elton John's Greatest Hits was the number one selling album in 81. Thriller was the number one selling album in 83 and 84. Born in the USA was 1985. And wedged in there is the Asia album, which I love more than anything. It's It used to be a guilty pleasure. Now I'm kind of proud of it. I'm like, that is an amazing pop rock album and it was just it, it just hit the sweet spot for me at a certain time right yeah i think we've gotten to the point too where it's like you know what you like what you like if you can if you can make a case for it that's fine go ahead and just listen to it you don't have don't hide in the closet like oh wait i don't like that record it's not high school anymore right say it loud and proud but to the point i mean asia that was a big hit that took off they did huge sales of that record so you yes. weren't going to be able to say well we got to get steve howe back right so Steve Howe's gone. So you've got to move on. And, you know, I think that there was a point where some of the guys, yes, were had done some recording. They were going to do something with Jimmy Page at one point during that time because Led Zeppelin was over. And maybe, yeah. you know, those guys um, were going to get together and do something with Page, which didn't work out. But they they gotten together with Trevor Rabin and they were going to call it Cinema because it was different, yeah, right? It was right. going to be a whole new band, Cinema. And they and Trevor Rabin is a driving force in the writing and he wrote Owner of a Lonely Heart and, and a lot of the songs on the record. And and he's gone on to have a huge career as a, doing scores for films. He's done like 50 movie scores or something like that. Yeah, and I think if, if you go back to listen to this record too, he does some of the lead vocals. He's not a bad vocalist. I mean, I, he's not John Anderson, but I mean, when you pair him with Anderson, that's a pretty good one-two punch. You're right. I agree with that. And it beefed up their singing. Chris Squire and Steve Howe kind of singing back up behind John is one thing. But Trevor is a lead singer in his own right. Mm -hmm. And the two of them together are good. But then, yes, he can he can sing lead on his own. And I want to talk a little bit more about that later because I do think that caused some interesting dynamics in the band later. But, you know, back to that. So they wrote some great songs. They got Tony Kay back in. Tony Kay, who'd been on the first yeah. three albums. 
And so, okay, we're a band now. They put that out, and it's huge, especially in America. I don't think it was as big a hit in the UK, but in the US, and thanks to MTV, that owner of Lonely Heart was enormous. And then some of the other songs were just big on American rock radio and, and have been for years. But it's catapulted them in the stratosphere. And if I'm not mistaken, this album represents something like a third of all their album sales ever. It could be. Because this thing was a monster. And somebody told me, I can't remember who it was, said they, they saw them maybe on this tour back in the day. And they started with Stone Cold Open for leave it the the acapella version oh. or the acapella part of that and it's like really like you're not even going to warm up the crowd you're just going to go right into that so again you're talking about guys who can really have the chops you're going to sing this song right from the start and really get this thing going again yeah i i, mean, like, I don't know what the sales were in the uk but yeah this was a monster hit monster. in the united states huge and the video was yeah. a heavy rotation on mtv mm all the time and they toured off it for a long time and and did great there and meanwhile asia came out with alpha and had the big don't cry song and video and some more mm -hmm. so you know you're getting you kind of have two camps and they do they both do very well you know so it, they've hit mtv and again we talk about how a big influence mtv was for us until it kind of went away in the mid 90s mtv was the national jukebox and i remember kids who didn't have mtv at home or maybe their parents didn't let them watch it. If they came to your house, that's all we were probably going to do, right? So you want to go out and play? No, man, you've got MTV. Let's watch for an hour, you know? Yeah, <laughs> an hour or three. Oh, yeah, I remember when we when we first got cable, like, it, it was, you were not to watch this. Okay, do not watch MTV. Okay, I'm going to the store. Okay. <laughs> Time to watch MTV. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, the, the, the Asia, heat of the moment with the, with the, um, pictures that kept scrolling mm -hmm. that was on all the time and yeah owner of a lonely heart where the guy at the end jumps off the building and turns into the eagle and you're like oh man this is really cool it's really cool right yeah so it, it's hard to follow that up it, no matter what you do it's hard to follow asia up even though alpha's pretty solid it's hard to follow up 90125 and they tried with big generator and big generator's pretty weak and i, I my guess is a classic yes fan would not have liked 90125 much, but they might have found some redeeming qualities to it. Big Generator, much less so. And there's Shoot High, Aim Low. Not a bad song. And Trevor's voice is cool in it, but it's, I don't know that it's a yes song. Right. Yeah. I think, right. Yeah. I think at this point, at that point in time, it pretty much was the Trevor Raven band. And so he's he's putting stuff in it. And you're right. I think that and we had talked about this previous to the show. But if in 1983, if you were 20 something, maybe 30 something, and you're like, oh, the new Yes record is coming out. 90125. Interesting. Well, OK, no Roger Dean on the cover here, but OK, we'll give it a spin. What is this? Mm -hmm. This is terrible. You sold out and became a rock. Oh, you're the worst. But then you've got this whole army of new fans who, if you would go back and now you listen to, like the, somebody who is a big fan of 90125 is not going to listen to Tales from the Topographic Ocean. They're going to say, right. what? So you kind of had this weird in-between living in two worlds. Right. And there is a song from Big Generator called Love Will Find a Way. And, and it was a single and they released a video for it. It's a song I sing to my daughter because it's kind of nice it's it's actually kind yeah. of a pretty song but i don't see it as a yes song and it has some gimmicks in it, it as 
Squire pulling out the harmonica in part of it. And it, I'm like, yes. if you were a big Yes fan, you'd be like, what the hell is this crap? And you know, and they're wearing these ridiculous 80s outfits. And you know oh, that the, yeah. the record company is like, get Trevor to sing, right? Because not only is he writing the songs and the record company tends to follow the talent, right? Who's, who's making the music? He's writing it. Okay, let's get behind him. But he's also good looking. He's photogenic. And by that point in the 80s, you had to be good looking to get on TV. You know, you, you, you had to have someone stand out. And John Anderson, I'm not saying he's not good looking. He's kind of a hobbit. I mean, his, his, his bandmates call him Napoleon, both because of the way he autocratically tells them what to do and because he's maybe five feet tall. Too bad Ronnie James Dio died. would be a great celebrity boxing match between those two. But yeah, so I'm sure the record company's like, put Trevor Rabin out. Which songs does Trevor sing on? That's the single, you know, because we'll make a video out of that. And I think eventually John Anderson's like, I'm the singer, but I'm not singing. You know, like, what do I do? And they hand him a guitar, kind of like, you know, Roger Daltrey plays a guitar during him and it's front because Pete's singing it, right? So it, That's it, it, always a, that's it, always a weird deal when you're like, okay, now I can't just stand there and snap my fingers. So I right. got to do something. And it's like, okay, is that even on? What are you doing back there? Which led him to say, okay, that's enough of that. And then they went out and did Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe just a couple years later because, and then basically the two camps of four. There was Steve Howe, and they recruited John Anderson, got Rick Wakeman back, and got Bill Bruford back, who hadn't been, you know, there in a long time, more than 15 years or so. Meanwhile, the band, and so, and then, so they're Yes, mainly based in England. And then there's Yes West with Chris Squire, who had never left, Alan White, who has never left ever since he joined. They had Trevor Raven, and they had Tony K-Back. They were trying to work on an album. So Anderson Bruford Wakeman and Howe comes out. It's actually pretty good. Brother of Mine, I think, is a very good Yes song. And they did a tour called An Evening of Yes Music Plus, where obviously they would play a lot of Yes and they would play stuff from their solo records and stuff from that record. And then when they were working on a new record, they were having a hard time. They Yes, West Camp was having a yard, hard time, too. But John Anderson's buddies with Trevor Raven. He's like, can you give me... I needed some songs. We're having a hard time coming to some songs. So Trevor Raven he said, well, here's three songs. You can have one. John Anderson listens to them. He likes them all. He's like, I want all three. He's like, well, you can't have all three because I'm trying to make our Yes record over here. And by the way, we kind of want you to sing on it, right? Because that's really all we're missing. And then eventually the record, company's got, record company got involved and said, why don't you just combine? Why don't you just become one big amalgamated yes which created quite possibly the best and most interesting yes tour of all time and quite possibly the worst yes album ever. <laughs> that's gonna say that's just i mean it, i'm sure in somebody's mind sitting around the Capitol records or whatever in los angeles they were like this is gonna work there's no way this was going to work. What's wrong with you? Because again, there's just too many egos. There's too many things. There's too many moving parts in a band where I, it doesn't really sound to me like there's anybody that's just kind of like the follower person. Like mm -hmm. everybody's got something to say. No, this was never going to work. Right. Well, I mean, so the album was basically cobbled together, right? It's, you had right. four or five songs from one camp, four or five songs from the other. They never all got together and played on any one song. You know, Which, by the way, I wanted to, I wanted to, I because I remember when this thing came out and they kind of marketed it that way. They right. kind of made you believe that they were all working together, but you're right. 
not even close. I mean, I don't even think they were in the same country making this record. No, all they have in common is that John Anderson sings on all the songs, basically. Right. I, Trevor may sing lead, and, and, and John does some backup on, on one of them. I, I haven't listened to it in so long because it's just not that good. And it's it's two different bands pieced together, so it doesn't make sense to me. But now the tour was great, and most of the members of the band took that as, that was a really, it was a lot of fun because you had to kind of fit in different places. You could play along with someone else who plays your singing instrument which usually is not the case and for most of them they consider that a big victory and of course the tour was successful financially and they did it mostly in the round uh, on like a rotating stage um, which is pretty neat the video I've seen is actually kind of similar to when we saw Metallica where it was supposed to be in the round but the place was so small they had to jam it into the corner The, the video of Union that's most popular from uh, someplace in Florida, maybe Miami or Sunrise, something like that, they kind of had it jammed in the, in, you know, on one side at the end, maybe. And so you didn't really get the, the full effect. But one person who I don't think liked it was Steve Howe. And he said it a little bit about it in his book, All My Yesterdays, how he'd be playing something at a classic old Yes song, something close to the edge or something like that. And then Trevor would come in and play something else. He's like, whoa, there's not another guitar on that. You know, you're not supposed to be playing there. And when they would play something like Owner of a Lonely Heart or something he didn't play on, he would just go off stage. So instead of eight people on stage, there'd be seven or whatever. He's like, because it's not really my song. It's not my part. I think he wanted Trevor to do that. But Trevor didn't do that. Not to mention Trevor wouldn't be on stage much if they were only doing the stuff that he played on. Right. Correct. Yeah. And like you said, at this point in time, they were pretty much marketing Raven as what maybe not the key to the whole thing, but a very big part of this. So yeah, if you had him walking off stage, what's going on here? Right, you know. And so after they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John Anderson's like, "Yeah, man, we should tour. We can all tour." And Steve, I was like, "Nope, we didn't discuss that. We didn't agree to that." And I think he is adamant about not playing with Trevor Rabin again. And I think he's got something, he's got some kind of a beef with John Anderson because otherwise there's no point in John Anderson not being in yes for the last 13 years or whatever it's been. It, mm-hmm. it, and and they're all very English, so they don't talk about it. It's very downplayed. And, so, you know, old things become big over time and blah, blah, blah. But uh, to me, it's a it's a travesty that for the last 10, 12 years, you've not been able to see John Anderson in Yes. And I was reluctant to see them again because I actually saw them once in 2011. A friend had tickets. They were coming to town, taking me as a guest. He had his company tickets or whatever. And it was Hal, White, and Squire. They had Benoit David instead of John Anderson. And Rick Wakeman was ill, so he sent his son Oliver Wakeman out to take his place. Who's really good in his own right. Absolutely. Yeah, he's fantastic. And he can do all his dad stuff. Well, you know, it's like if you grew up in his house, it's like learning your ABCs. He's been playing that stuff since he was a little kid. So he was great, you know. But when I saw them, and they did do Owner of a Lonely Heart, which they don't, they haven't done much in the last 10 years. I didn't think Hal played it that well. And I and I don't know if it's intentional or he's like, yeah, I'll play this good enough. Uh, or the way I think it should go. But it's like, this was the biggest hit the band ever had easily. Easily. And though you weren't in the band at that time and you didn't write it, but this is a huge hit and it's the reason some of these people came to see you. And it just wasn't that good to me. Now, I wasn't really there just to see that. I wanted to see the other things. I wanted to hear Chris Squire play that bass and, and check out Oliver Wakeman because I'd never seen him play at that point. But I, I was I was a little disappointed with Steve and I, I just feel like his, I don't know, his attitude towards Raven and that 
that era is more negative than it needs to be. And I, this is something that I don't understand, and it doesn't even have it, – it goes beyond yes. At some point in time, you have to understand this is a product. You're selling someone a product, and at a certain point in time, you have to say, you know what? Eh, I might not like – person A, person B, I don't really like this song, but for the greater good of the people who buy these records and who come to these tours, yeah, okay, maybe the Owner of a Lonely Heart isn't my song, and I didn't write it, but you know what? If people want to hear it, I'm going to play it to the best of my ability. You know, the, the best thing for the band is to have John Anderson. The best thing for the band is to do this. Sometimes you got to suck it up, dude, and just say, okay, for the sake of everything, I'm going to make this work. And for you to purposely do that and then kind of cheese off everybody, mm-hmm. it's a little self-centered to me. And that's and you know, and I I don't know what the relationship is. I don't know, and I know Chris Squire and John Anderson used to butt heads quite a bit. But now that Chris Squire is gone, if that was really a thing, there'd be no reason not to bring John Anderson back. So it's got to be mm-hmm. something with Steve Howe, right? And, and I and I don't get it, you know. But I mean, Union was kind of the last cultural, I would say, on a major level, cultural high point for Yes, in that it, it got a lot of press. And the tour was really interesting, and it did well. Eventually, the 90125 Big Generator crew got back together to do Talk, which doesn't have much on it. And then, not long after that, the kind of classic lineup with Rick Wakeman and Steve Howe came back, did some tours, did a little bit of album. Then Rick left again. They had a few lineup changes. Then Rick came back from like 2003 and four, and they did some great kind of yes reunion shows like 35th anniversary shows mm-hmm. they had yeah. big sets look at songs from songus and and some of the live albums they did from that time are really great they had uh, Roger Dean created like balloons and scenery up on stage so it was really pretty yeah. neat in that first part and you're kind of hopeful okay this is the classic yes lineup Alan White John Anderson Chris Squire Rick Wakeman Steve Howe can we hold it together this is Rick's fifth tenure in the band no it falls <laughs> apart Yes stops for four years. Then when they come back, they're without John Anderson. They get Oliver Wakeman for a while, but Rick Wakeman never comes back because John Anderson never comes back. Then Chris Squire dies. And now, I don't know, I'm not going next year. Tried to go last year, wanted to go this year. I'm not going to see this is the best Yes ever. I'm going to see Yes play in Royal Albert Hall, you know, an amazing historic venue. It's a huge theater. It's like a 5,200 seater. So it's either an enormous theater or a tiny arena, whatever, however you want to look at it but and get to see them play some classic amazing stuff you know that they opened for cream on their farewell concert there more than 50 years ago yes was the opening act on the cream farewell concert at royal albert hall that's pretty cool that's that's something that you can't i and i think the, the kind of the problem now that i'm thinking about this is that there was really never a solid lineup like they kind of had a classic lineup for a while but it, and, and part of it has to do with how long they've been around. But you're right, with everybody just popping in, popping out, you don't know who's there anymore. And, oh, wait a minute, on this record, this guy was on here. Uh, okay, I think that led to a lot of their kind of getting, I don't want to say passed over, but not held up like they should be in the, in the rock and roll era, you know, with bands like The Who and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. It, it's just, I think they had a hard time keeping a solid lineup together. But that could come from the fact that, too, if you, like I said, if you all have creative people, nobody's going to sit there and take anything. I don't really like this. I'm going to put my hand up and say, I don't like this. 
and make a big stink about it. But yeah, the the in and out and who's here and who's not here. Yeah, the, the, I think some people just give up. They're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. What I wish we had seen though, action is when Asia got back together. When original Asia got back together for a while, they toured with Yes. Like they would open for Yes, and Steve Howe would do double duty. As eventually, I think Jeff Downs did a little bit. But how cool would it have been to see Asia open, do 45 minutes of Asia, and then see Yes afterwards yeah. you know that would yes yes that that is that is a big regret because that would have been a great show especially for uh, you stayed tuned for the whole thing probably you know there would have been people who would have showed up a little late but not us we'd have been there right from the beginning they're still setting up chairs i don't care i'm here to see the show we kind of like I, I i never really had a burning desire to see journey without steve perry but then asia was set to open for journey on like 60 dates or something like that so i'm like okay i'll i'll go see journey and i get to see original asia one more time you know and then john wetton died right before that tour and then it's like okay steve howe's like you know what i can't do both i can't do yes and asia anymore it's just too hard i'm too old and so i'm gonna pick one i'm gonna pick yes because they're the bigger brand name they get bigger gigs they have steadier gigs and they don't open, you know, they're the, they're the headliner. Right. So, so then eventually when I saw them, I was supposed to see the whole band. And then when I saw them, it was like half the band and I'm like, yeah, oh, well, at least I did see original Asia once and I'm happy that I did. Yeah. It's, it's too bad that it, it was just, I think it was just too big of a, too big of a show to hold together for all of these years. But yeah, it, 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 one of these things where I think that if you, the more that you listen to it, the more you'll become a fan of it, especially as you get a little bit older. This is not for the casual consumer, but you. It, the more that you stick with it, the more that you're going to like it. You're going to hear different things, and that's really, to me, what this is all about. And it's funny because I was talking to my wife about this, you know, kind of just going over the ideas for the show, mm-hmm. and you had mentioned something about this is what this is what created punk rock mm-hmm. is all of this stuff. So I mean, you're looking at these songs that are you know the eight, ten, twelve, twenty minutes long. Mm-hmm. I was I was looking at Walk Among Us from the Misfits. I turned into a Martian. Okay, <laughs> one one minute and forty three seconds long. <laughs> yeah, that to me that's the other end of the spectrum of it's just. And I think if there's three chords, I don't. I think that's one too many. <laughs> so it's funny how you know you get this kind of backlash, especially in the United States. But but if you listen to especially because I was listening to the you know like the first Yes record and then Time in a Word, mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, it's rock and roll, but it's really more like a classical piece of music. It is that you really you listen to the whole thing. And if you're if you want to hear guitar, brah, drums, boom, in the pocket, no, that's this is not for you. But if you can if you can digest it, it's really good. It is, it is. But I, I was like listening to Delirium, Gates of Delirium on Relayer to get ready for the show, and, and I used to think punk came out of. It was rebellious, obviously, in attitude, but it was also rebellious about, we're going to do this in a sweaty little bar. We don't need Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin's 100,000-person stadium to play a gig. We'll do it this way. But what they're really rebelling against is, nobody can play this, you know? And, and no one can, like, Genesis from this era, and yes, like we said, we did seven songs on basically three albums. Throw Close to the Edge in there. That's only three songs. So four albums, basically, ten songs. 
you know, that, that has all these intricate stuff. No one can play that. You shouldn't have to be able to play that to express yourself in a rock and roll manner, right? And, and so that was Correct. part of what the punk ethos was against, too. It's, yeah, it's against, yeah, I don't need your money. I don't need your private jets. I don't need your stadium gigs. But it's also like, I don't need 20 minutes of seven, eight time and everything else. I just need to get out there and scream at how I can't find a job and hate my parents, you know, whatever else ails the teenager. And the thing is, too, you know, for the for the kid, for the person who's, you know, 13 years old, are you going to sit there and play Relayer? No, you're not. But can I learn three chords and, hey, I can play this other song. Well, there you go. Good for you. That's right. It was a time when these guys were real musicians and i'm not saying that other people aren't musicians but i'm talking about like you know you took actual lessons you know about composing you know about scoring music and how you know one part goes into the next part and if the guitar is doing this the drums are doing this and here's what the bass is happening it's very complicated and yeah there there is a certain part of the human psyche that says i just want loud and fast mm -hmm. well i told you for years that you should be getting classic rock magazine it's a great british yeah. publication they usually give you a record every month with songs you should be hearing either new bands or you know sometimes like i got a nice deep purple one with some of their new stuff on it last year that's cool they have a sister publication Prague magazine uh dun, dun, dun. And, and this this month, it's it's really nice. They came with a record of new tunes. They also had three nice Roger Dean prints um, oh, that came nice. with it, which is which is always cool. And then they had a twelve page twelve page story on them. And they interviewed Bill Bruford and John Anderson and Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman and Tony Kay and others about stuff that happens 50 years ago. In 71, they made the Yes album and Fragile, and they're all kind of reminiscing on it. So I, I, I always have recommended Classic Rock Magazine. I got into Prague so I could learn a little bit more about stuff that maybe I don't know about. But I mean, to your point, if you, if you love Yes, if you love Pink Floyd... That's a, that's kind of a really cool way to kind of branch out too. You know, if you get something like this and they're like, hey, if you like this, you probably haven't heard this other thing, but you you're gonna like it. And so, yeah, there, there, it, it, I really love listening to new stuff that you know you wouldn't have mm -hmm. any other way. But it's just, the, I mean, I can listen to you know Led Zeppelin a zillion times, which I have, but to have something new is pretty cool. And it's hard for us. I mean, how did we get music growing up? Well, we got it from MTV, and we got it from rock radio. And you can't get music from MTV anymore. And rock radio is either not playing this stuff, or it's just playing the exact same stuff that it played 40 years ago, right? So it's Correct. we're not getting anymore. But I love, there was a story in here about how John Anderson doesn't have the ability, he can hear orchestrations in his head, but he can't put it into an instrument he has to get other people to do it uh, it, you know, whereas like like if Rick Wakeman can hear something in his head, he goes to the keyboard and he plays it, right? Steve Howe is feeling something, hearing something. He goes to the guitar and he articulates it that way. But John Anderson didn't. I'm like, well, then maybe I waste. I should have because I can do that. I hear stuff in my head all the time. If I go to the guitar, I I can't figure it out. Or it would be amazing to to have that ability and then have it come to fruition if you have the musicians to do it. You know, I thought that was a neat story. It, it really is. It, it I, and I could do that forever i can listen to people like how do you i can't do this mm -hmm. so how do you do it and it's the story is never the same twice wakeman had been with a band called the straubs before he came into yes in fact they opened for yes i think on some tour and okay. that's how they got to know him a little bit the straubs actually are still going in some incarnation in the uk if i'm not mistaken huh. but he's like the main guy would come in basically with the song and then we would all arrange around it like i put my keyboard around whatever he wrote or whatever whereas in yes it would be like Chris Ward said, well, I've got this. And it would be 
you know, something like that. And then, okay, well, what can you put in there? Like, well, I can put this in. Like, I got this thing that goes like this. What do we add? He goes, and it was collaborative. It was fun. And he talked about his first rehearsal. They did 60% of Heart of the Sunrise in like an hour or something. Like, man, that was fun. You know, it was kind of cool. We all kind of get together and add our stuff. And, you know, as long as you can keep that going with creative people, that's why going back and listening to this stuff now with older ears and with time is really amazing. And I have a lot of respect for all the different men who played on, on the Yes records. I, I am hopeful to see Yes one more time in Royal Albert Hall, obviously, if it happens. Or if I can go, it's it's in June of next year. There's a distinct possibility I won't live here at that point. But if I do get to go, you'll hear all about it here on the podcast, I'm sure. So that's our take on Yes, an incredibly talented band that has persevered over the years, made dozens of records, lots of live albums, big tours, and yes, a lot of lineup changes, which maybe led to some fans tuning out at different points over the years. But for Americans who were introduced to the band in the 80s during Owner of a Lonely Heart time, it's great to be able to go back and find this incredible music and understand more about these extraordinary musicians who made it. You can't knock the results. Over 40 million records sold and still touring to this day. Yes, they've had breakups. Yes, there have been a couple different incarnations, sometimes competing incarnations, but you can't deny the talent and the amazing musicianship that they've laid down over the years. And I hope that this helps the more casual fans think about taking a harder look, especially those who are like me in action, grew up in the 80s, got exposed to the 90125 lineup and songs, but then were able to go back and find Relayer, find tales from topographic oceans, those 70s progressive albums that are monumental in the world of progressive rock. And hey, maybe pick up a copy of Prague Magazine to help you better understand what's going on in the world of Prague today. Hey, as usual, folks, do we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You gotta let us know. Tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf and check out all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com and make sure to download and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. I think we may take a turn back to more rock and roll and maybe some classics that we grew up with on the next episode. But you'll have to tune in to find out what we're talking about. And as usual, folks, all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 